if in fact, you know, we have God, the father and his uh, consort, you know, wisdom, the mother, uh, that's, I mean, I just see it in that simple, you know, nothing complicated there. It's just a husband and wife, if you will, um, coming together and producing life. And that life is in their image. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 48. I interviewed Dina Dye. In this episode, we talk about gender within the Godhead. Specifically, we explore whether or not the Holy Spirit is feminine, and from there we get into male and female roles throughout Scripture, and of course, how that applies to us today. So, no further ado, let's get weird. For for those that aren't familiar, I'd like to just kind of give you, uh, well, I'd like for you to give us a little bit of background, but I will put um, our previous interview in the show notes okay. so that people can go back and listen to your full testimony that are interested because it's an amazing story. Um, but for those that haven't seen your, your previous episode, go, go ahead and just give us a little bit of background on yourself. Sure. So I was uh, born and raised in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, actually was, well, I shouldn't say born. <laughs> I was born in San Francisco, but Raised out of Canada, a Jewish family. You know, we celebrated the feasts. I went to Hebrew school, went to an Orthodox Jewish summer camp. So I was kind of bathed in that environment. Now we were conservative uh, Judaism. So they're not quite as, um, you know, Orthodox as the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived in a neighborhood that was outside of the Jewish community. We attended a synagogue that was much farther away. And so the the community that we lived in was predominantly Gentile. So we were really, you know, fish out of water, the only Jews in the neighborhood and the only Jew to attend my school. So I did have some exposure uh, early on to some of the the neighbors. We had Catholics and uh, Protestants of various denominations. And so I did have an opportunity to go to churches here and there. And so I did kind of hear things, uh, didn't understand them, and you know, wasn't explained in the environment that I lived. But I think I just planted those seeds deep to a time when I finally recognized that, you know, Yeshua, Jesus really was the Messiah and that the New Testament was a, you know, a pattern, the, the gospel for, for bringing in the kingdom. Uh, I went through a period of being a first-class hippie and, you know, into the new age movement and all that sort of thing, all in the search, you know, the, the classic wandering Jew <laughs> looking for truth traveled a lot in my early years. Um, for about five years, I lived out of a 14 pound backpack, went through Europe and the middle East, and Northern Africa. And then I went down to Mexico, Central America, lots of stuff happened. So you'll have to, to check out, uh, my full testimony. I'm not going to go into all of that now, but again, there was just that heart to that searching heart to find, you know, who I I'd already had, always had a sense of who God was just because of my upbringing, but I felt there was always more and I didn't, nothing was filling, right. You know, I tried a lot of different things and nothing kind of filled that void. Uh, long story short, I ended up in Taos, New Mexico, and it was kind of, they considered it a high place, like opposite, you know, to bed or something, <laughs> or just, this is a high place and spiritual things happen. So 
my friend and I had packed up our car and headed out from San Francisco to uh, to Taos and was was very involved in New Age there. But I um, ended up going to a uh, they called it the Quimby Center at the time where I was getting my aura balanced. Right. And uh, the guy told me that in my last life, I was a disciple of Christ. So I was very fascinated by that. And it was shortly after that time I had an op- my first opportunity to actually read the New Testament because I had never read it. I only I knew the Old Testament well. I could actually navigate through you know my Hebrew fairly well, but the New Testament was not something I had ever really been exposed to. So that was the first time I read it. Uh, it blew me away, and I was amazed personally how much of it was very Hebrew thinking in nature. Like it. I never knew that. I thought we have the Christian religion, we got Judaism, and never the twain shall meet. And so uh, when I got to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, that was kind of my moment. And shortly thereafter, I ended up in a church, uh, the Assemblies of God. I was there for a number of years, and I did have opportunity to teach and train. But I always tried to show people where they could find their foundation in the Torah, because it's all there. And even into the Tanakh, the writings of the prophets, etc. And I always looked for the kind of connection between the two. And I could see the sort of seamless relationship. And I was just surprised that people didn't see it because it was very obvious to me. So anyways, I just fast forward and you know, had a family and all that stuff. And I went back to school to finish my bachelor's because I wanted to homeschool my kids. And at the time... The state of New Mexico was threatening that if uh, you didn't have a degree, you wouldn't be able to homeschool, which they actually backed down. But I think God knew better. So I finished my degree. I homeschooled my kids. I did get somewhat involved politically through the 90s. And then ultimately, I finally got my demon, my doctor of ministry in Hebraic studies and Christianity. And I created my website, Foundations in Torah. Uh, which is a membership site, but I have tons of material on there. And uh, also start a ministry called On Fire Prayer Ministry, which is uh, we, we have a large team all around the world in which we pray for our nation, the nations, et cetera. And so now I'm just, uh, I do a lot of podcasts. I finished writing my third book in the series, The Temple Revealed. The third book is The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, which we had, we've already done an interview on that. So the first book, uh, Creation, I don't know if you, did you have a chance to read that book? I did. I went, I went back and uh, I read the, the, the two previous books. I read the whole series. Okay. And I know our topic of discussion today, yeah. you wrote about in, in your first book. Yeah. So I, I figured you must have. Um, so yeah, there, chapter five, I dealt with the concept of the feminine Holy Spirit, which is what we wanted to talk about today. So the books are doing, uh, they're on Amazon. You can just, you know, uh, hit Dina Die, Dr. Dina Die, and they'll come up and you can purchase the books there. So I've been quite uh, pleasantly surprised by how well they're doing and they're selling all over the world, uh, from Brazil to UK, France, uh, Spain of all places. So that's been very exciting. And I, I'm excited because I think clearly the message is getting out and people are starting to think differently on, on these topics. So that's the, that's the quick version. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and, uh, so I'll just say personally, I've, I've been, you know, real blessed by just reading your books. And since our, our last interview, um, you, you gave me, uh, you know, membership to your site and I was able to just 
absorbed so many of your teachings on there and read your two previous books. And so uh, this was something I think I you did a teaching on your on your site, maybe separate yeah. through some different program. I, I heard that first and then I, okay. I read about the chapter um, the chapter you wrote about in your, in your book as well. And so that's where I derived the questions from. And okay. uh, I, I covered this previously uh, very briefly on another episode with a different guest. And so I had uh, I'd been familiar with this before, but prior, I think prior to that, I had only heard preached in the sermon at my church that God is not um, bound by, by gender. Um, and I never really gave it too much thought outside of that. Cause I know there's sometimes um, attributes of God that are feminine in scripture. And that was basically the only thing I've heard about is that, Oh, he's not bound by gender. He has both male and female attributes. Um, but I never really digged any further into it. Um, but there, but that's what we're going to do today. So, so what does the, the Bible say about uh, gender within the Godhead? Well, let's back up. <laughs> that's okay. kind of a loaded question right at the start. So yeah. for me, my journey, I mean, that's all I can do is share with you how I came to these conclusions. You know, we could argue till the cows come home and everybody, you know, and again, I feel my, my Jewish Hebrew background and, and understanding things from that perspective has, has given me a bit of a different view. So I spent, I have spent a great deal of time in Genesis chapter one. And so they, even out of the gate, Genesis one, one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, understanding that in the beginning, isn't a chronology or a time frame, but is speaking about building a house. So, and, and that would come from a, like a covenant relationship. So I maintain that the very first verse is really a, an establishment of a covenant, kind of like the preamble, if you will, because mm -hmm. the ancients always looked and, and going back to the ancient Near East world, theirs was about the unity between heaven and earth. So when you had this unity uh, and the king was on the throne, by the king being on the throne, it brought that unity and it made the sacred space have peace and rest. So heaven in the Hebrew, Shemaim is masculine and, and the earth, Eretz, is feminine. So really in the very first verse in Hebrew, we have these two <laughs> genders. And then as I went through all of the days of creation and looking at the various things, the separating of light and dark and day and night and uh, water from uh, water and seas from land, um, you know, everything was male and female. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, I sort of just discovered that. And then ultimately Adam, I mean, he is in the image of God and God is male and female. So Adam created in his image. And then we have this separation process, which a number of scholars see uh, in covenantal terms, but this idea of, of, uh, of covenant the word Brit means to separate, but it also means to join. That's one of the unique things about the Hebrew language. When you take a word, it has both meanings, one each side of the coin. So it's separating, but it's joining at the same time. Hmm. So in order for life to be produced, in order for creation to, to come forth, I mean, you got to have male and female. That's kind of the basics. I mean, I remember biology, you know, 101. And so this whole idea of that uh, that was that that covenant relationship is and it's um, the best example we can see is a marriage. 
So when, when a husband and wife come together and they're the purpose of them making a covenant between one another is to build a house and ultimately fruit is going, you know, seed is going to come forth from that house. So I began to see the whole creation process in the same way and how wonderful that God would give us something so easy to understand in the marriage to see exactly what creation looked like. And so this idea of female and male based on God and himself and his attributes coming together and producing life. And really, I think the story of, of the Bible is, is, is producing fruit. You know, you're either producing life or you're producing death. So the nations produce death, but in God's economy, his heartbeat, everything is about producing life. So within that, you know, each of the, of the, the genders have their certain role. I mean, there's no question. So the, the ancients would identify sort of the male role with heaven. And that was the place that the king, the temple would be built and the king on the throne, et cetera. And the, the, the woman, her purpose, her role, of course, is to produce life and all that goes along with that. But the other aspect of the woman's role is this concept of wisdom. And so I've, I've got, I mean, if you go back to the sort of the Talmudic sages or even back into the early uh, second century, third century, they tied wisdom with the woman and this idea of this, this hovering entity over the waters as being feminine. And they tied that to the dove in particular, and then they related to Israel and they, you know, they saw it as the dove hovering over the nest, which was the temple. I mean, all this imagery is throughout the writings, the, the extra biblical writings, the pseudepigraphic writings, there's some in there. Like I said, the Talmudic writings, the, the, uh, the Talmud itself. And I just began to read it more and more and see it in more and more places. And so it was just logical to me. But again, I think you have to start in Genesis 1 and try to see the pattern there before we start, you know, you can't understand it in the New Testament if you haven't kind of worked through it in Genesis 1. So uh, I don't know, does that make sense? No, yeah, it totally does. Um, and from, and that's kind of how I'd heard it approached when, when I read about it with my other guest as he talked about creation, how there's the separation. Um, and of course, he, he kind of made the same point is that to create life, we, the concept we know takes both male and female to, yeah. to create life. Um, so I have a follow-up question on that. I kind of want to go back and talk about this more generically, but uh, as far as the separation goes with well, all throughout the, the creation story, we get to Adam and we see out of him, out of the rib, comes eve now you could read that as he's the the female aspect of adam is, is being separated from him is that a a wrong way of seeing that well you you know that the sages and commentators have been debating this for centuries so we we might not come up with the exact answer yeah. But uh, so, the you know, the rabbis will tell us uh, and, and in the translation that it's a rib, which it could be, you know, the the, the root word there, uh, cell, means a shadow or an image. So in my opinion, the idea of what we're doing is we are taking 
that Eve, Hava, mother of the living, is made in the image of Adam in the way that Adam is made in the image of God, that she is kind of the shadow or, you know, uh, and under his sovereignty in essence, but she is her own unique a person because she has a specific function and purpose. And I think when we have the separation going on between elements, it is that each of the elements have a very specific purpose and function, but that when they come together, it produces something different almost. So they, they can stand alone and do what they're called to do. But yet when they come together, something, something different happens. It, it kind of produces some sort of different looking entity, if you will. So Adam obviously has his role to play and Hava Eve has her role to play. She is in his image. So she resembles him and we could say maybe physically, but when they come together, they do something magical happens, something different happens. And out of that relationship, they produce another entity, you know, another being who has life, who will continue on. I think that's probably the best definition of what eternity is, right? Just keep reproducing after like kind over and over, but never taking away from the uniqueness and the, the purpose and function of the individual entity like Adam or Eve, but yet they provide something unique and new when they join together. Hmm. Can you speak more to what, what those separate functions are? You already alluded to it a little bit as far as Adam's function versus Eve's function. Well, uh, so all of this is about house building, right? So Adam, in my opinion, again, the uh, Adam would kind of represent to us the imagery of the father. So any kind of purpose and function that the father might have to oversee the house, to bring a certain amount to bring order to the house, to be sitting on the throne, uh, ruling and reigning over his, his empire, all these kinds of things. And then I know this is maybe going to sound a little weird, but uh, think about Adam. You know, he is the agent and representative of God, and he is placed in the garden to serve as God's representative king to rule over the earth. And he has with him his bride queen, <laughs> uh, if we look at God himself, this is what some of the sages would say that the, the queen would be wisdom because we've got, an, uh, we can read all kinds of verses in the book of Proverbs about this attribute called wisdom. And she is a she, and she is with God in the beginning and she builds her house and all that sort of language. So the, the, the wisdom ends up personified Eve personifies the wisdom. So all of the attributes of wisdom would go with Eve, you know, the, um, and I'll, I'll go further and just say wisdom and the Holy spirit are kind of are tied together. So things like comfort and, and teaching and uh, you know, bringing typically in a, in a marriage, isn't it? The woman is kind of the, the, the power behind the throne. You know, she, her job yeah. is to provide wisdom and insight and intuitiveness to her husband to help him make decisions for the whole house. And of mm. course, she's the fruit bearer and children are going to come forth from her. So God or Adam would serve as the sovereign. So any of the kind of attributes that a sovereign would have over his land or over his empire are those attributes of Adam. And of course, he would function 
as the father in the home, the, also as a protector and a provider and, you know, in, in all those. We, and his heart is to extend and mercy and compassion, which because we see that as the very heart of God. So any of the attributes of God are supposed to find their purpose and function in Adam. And any of the attributes of wisdom are supposed to find their function and purpose in Eve or Chava. And so it's just a replica replay of what we have, you know, I'm, I'm sure some people, I don't, this is kind of hard to process, but to me, it's very simple because this is the pattern all through. I mean, why do we have so many stories about matriarchs and patriarchs repeated over and over and over again and all the stuff that they go through? Because everything goes back to the marriage relationship. And then you see the importance of marriage and the covenant and the fruit producing and as the, the house being as a place of protection and provision. And then you see why when we reject wisdom and when a culture removes itself from God and throws out its Judeo-Christian uh, ethic, then we end up in, you know, transgenderism and homosexuality and just the, the, the breakdown of the, of the family. That is the goal of the enemy is to destroy the human family. And you can see what is required to keep the family intact just on a, you know, modern view. But we see that all through the scriptures that the patriarchs and matriarchs have are, are called to protect and provide for their family. Sometimes they do a good job and sometimes they don't. Mm. Mm. Okay. So um, you've already alluded to it, but can we go back to, to the Godhead now and wh where okay. do we see gender played out within the, the Godhead? Uh, sorry, I didn't hear. Could you repeat? I missed a couple of words there. Oh, I'm sorry. Just within the within the Trinity, within the Godhead, okay. uh, do we see gender? Oh, with Godhead. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's kind of a long story, but for uh, before we get to about the second or third century, the Holy Spirit or wisdom was always associated with the feminine, and so again, in my opinion, I see the whole Godhead concept not as you know. God, the male father, Holy Spirit, the male entity, and Yeshua, the male son, male, male, male. Okay. And, you know, we don't want to get an argument on that. But to me, it represents the first family. Mm. Okay. So instead of a trinity, which, you know, may be alluded to and, you know, church fathers write about, but if we really look at it, it's the first family. So God, mm. father, wisdom, mother, producing life, son or the sons of God, um, which mm. I can explain in just a second. And so when we get to Yeshua, we see the thing being replayed again, the whole creation story is, and, and the attributes of mother, father are being played out in the relationship between Joseph and Mary, Miriam, who is of course embodying the Holy spirit and producing a son, right? So mm. if we go back to the basics again in, in the beginning uh, Elohim, et heaven and earth. So we look at when we when we read that, we look at heaven and we, you know, look up and go, okay, you know, this blue thing up there with stars at night, and it's this space, it's very kind of ethereal and otherworldly. But for the ancients, uh, heaven represented a realm where the king resided. So they would put a temple on top of a mountain. 
And in the temple on top of the mountain would be the throne, of course, for the gods, but ultimately the gods representative would be the king and he would sit on the throne. And so his domain is heaven. And so the domain of his subjects uh, was earth. And so that unity, again, that covenant relationship uh, between the suzerain and the vassal or the king and the son or the, uh, the servant and the father and the son, out of that relationship, fruit would be born. And we see this in Genesis 2, 4, because it says, um, these are the toldot of the heavens and the earth when they were created, which is kind of bizarre because the Hebrew word there for toldot, which is a word used in virtually every genealogy in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, is about bringing forth children. So you're going, I don't understand how, you know, how does heaven and earth bring forth children? That doesn't make sense. So there's this idea of, you know, it's not that it's actual heaven and substance, material, whatever gases and stuff we have in, in the air. It's about the realm of the king uh, joining together with the realm of the earth and whoever that, that could represent the mother, you know, I can't say for sure, but together they produce the sons of God. Now the sons of God is just a title for the heir to the throne. So all, we have all the sons of God language, don't we, all through? And of course, Yeshua is the son of God. But it's, it's after the unity between the heavens and the earth or the realm of the king and the realm of his subjects, they, when they come together, they produce life. And that life, they're the sons of God because they are going to be the heirs to the throne. And uh, I, I think it's no more complicated than that. But because we take everything literally, we run into trouble. Mm. So let me ask this, um, the Hebrew word for the Holy Spirit, um, I've always heard is feminine. Can you Correct. explain, because all we see in, in our Bibles, English Bibles, is just the pronoun he. So can you right. explain or what it. that, <laughs> yeah, um, can you explain, you know, what that what that means for a Hebrew word to be feminine and what are the implications for that? Well, typically your words that end in hey um, or a chet uh, are feminine words. So, I mean, just purely grammatically speaking, the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And we have uh, in the very first, the spirit of God hovered over the waters. So we have ruach Elohim. And right there you have ruach as feminine, Elohim as masculine, which is kind of interesting. So together, they're creating something, and it's hovering over the waters. So um, Ruach HaKodesh is the, the word for the Holy Spirit. The is hey, and Kodesh means holy, so Ruach HaKodesh. So it, in just purely grammatical sense, it's a feminine word. Now, there's another word you might be familiar with. It's called, uh, Christians will say Shekinah. Uh, mm -hmm. In Hebrew, it's Shekinah. And you hear that hey sound again. It's also mm -hmm. a feminine word. And it's not really found anywhere in the Bible like that. But we would find it, um, the root would be shikan, which means to dwell. And out of that, you might hear mishkan, which is the word for tabernacle. So the mm -hmm. mishkan is also feminine, which is the house, right? And so the presence of God or the indwelling presence of God is actually seen in feminine terms inside the house. 
It's the same as the mikdash or the sanctuary. Um, it's seen in feminine terms. So in Judaism, the house was always uh, the temple is, is a feminine entity. And in fact, there's an expression they use that a man's wife is called his house. So another term you might be familiar with, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, the, the Hebrew word malkut, it also is feminine and it's the kingdom. The kingdom is called the malkut. So just like we had the spirit of God, the Ruach, feminine Elohim, now we have the Malkut, Shemaim. So Malkut is feminine, Shemaim, heaven is masculine. And together that form, you don't have the word of, but it forms the kingdom of heaven. Mm. So contained in that phrase, again, we have masculine and feminine. It's just very interesting. So the word Torah, because it has that hey sound at the end, is also feminine. The menorah, the menorah, you see that hay sound, it's also feminine. And um, I mean, it's just, it's all, a lot of these things are feminine in nature. Now, again, that's grammatically speaking. By the time we get to the second, uh, second century, uh, the Latin word for spirit, which I forget what it is, is, was masculine, although we're still hanging on to the feminine word uh, from the Aramaic, which is Ruha. So that sounds like Ruach. And um, I'm trying to think, oh, well, in, in Greek, we have Numa, which is here, neither here nor there. <laughs> Basically, it masculine. Yeah. So it wasn't very long uh, after uh, Yeshua's resurrection and as the church began to, to move forward that we see this change. Now, it stayed feminine, mostly in the Syriac church in the Middle East, I think almost up into the sixth century, they would use Ruha, the Aramaic, and it would refer to it, we'd find it in uh, wisdom literature or poetry and that kind of stuff. But by that time in the Bible, it's no longer feminine, it is really by the second century, it's masculine. So everything translated in the Hebrew Bible now has the Ruach, Numa as being masculine, of course, because it's in Greek. We don't really, we don't essentially have the New Testament in Hebrew, although yeah. we could argue about that too. But so it's all Greek, and and then it's we're two thousand years from there. Yeah. So it's very challenging. Again, there are uh, the, now the Talmud. You understand what the Talmud is, sort of maybe. I do, but go ahead and explain okay. it. Uh, so we have, it has two parts. It has the Mishnah and the Gemara. So the Mishnah is the codif uh, codifying of the oral tradition, the oral law, and it's divided into six, uh, what they call orders. And there, you know, it explains mostly of what's going on in the first, uh, in the second temple period, first century. And then the Gemara is the commentary the rabbis give on the Mishnah. And together they form the Talmud. And so that goes from um, probably about two, 300 BCE on up to about 600 of the common era. So in the, in the, um, in the Talmud, in various places, you find that it talks about the spirit wisdom as being feminine. Mm -hmm. And the other place would be in what we call Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic literature, which is, is much later as well. 
and kind of off the rail. I mean, I can't handle that stuff. It's so esoteric. I don't know what they're talking about, but it's yeah. this idea of this tree, which is feminine and it has these attri- attributes called the Sifirote and they're all feminine attributes. And so that really launches the whole idea of, of the tree of life and everything into the feminine realm. And that may be one of the reasons that, that some of the scholars and stuff react so vehemently against thinking of the Holy Spirit in feminine terms. You know, mm. who knows? I mean, there's a lot of politics in this as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's understandable. And I think when I first heard this, it it can make people feel uncomfortable because we yeah. are, if you've never thought about it any in a different way, and it, just because it's new and it's different, um, it can cause that discomfort because you feel like everything you've thought and known yeah. them to this point has, has been wrong. So, if, so of course there's, you know, there's going to be uh, some of that, but for me, when I started to, when you just take, take it to its logical conclusion and really think it through, you kind of have to have a, a position on it because if we look at, <clears throat> for me, it was kind of easy to see because, you know, one argument is we see both male and female, you know, we are both male and female and all animals, all male and female as well. We're made in his image, both male and female. Um, But I've always heard when it, when it comes to this, this feminine spirit that, that God has feminine attributes and that he has both male and and female attributes. But if we really look at that, um, what does that, what does that actually mean? Are we saying that, that God is both, male and female? Are we saying he's n- not either male or female? Or, or in, in this view, we're saying we have God the Father and we have God the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're, you're really saying. We have God the Father, male. We have the Holy Spirit, female, and then they're coming together to produce life. Um, which Doesn't that get for me, more simple than that. <laughs> that for me is, is so much more, um, I'm, I'm so much more willing to accept that versus a God who, I mean, it sounds good on, on one level that he has both attributes, but we have no example of that in, in, in nature. We don't have an example of someone that's both female and male. That's just really not natural. Um, yeah, not natural. I mean, so probably some I really aberration like, somewhere, right? <laughs> I don't like thinking of God as, as not having gender or as having both genders. That, um, that's, that's also a little, little bit bothersome. Um, so anyway, just as you're talking, you know, the, the problem, so I think you had a chance to talk with uh, Dr. John Walton, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if we're going to approach the scriptures from a, from material substantive origins, then we are going to make stuff mean stuff versus approaching it from their perspective, the ancient Near East world. Like they, they were concerned about what something meant, not what it looked like. And he, he'll talk about that. So if I um, talk to you about, you know, a, a tr- you know, if I say tree, well, for us, we're going to look at the tree and I'm going to explain to you what the bark looks like and, you know, how the branches are shaped and what the leaves look like and, you know, things like that. But they looked at a tree at, in a different way. Um, so for them, for example, a tree 
uh, produced fruit, obviously, but it was so large compared to themselves that they saw that tree as a connecting uh, element between heaven and earth. And so it mattered more to them what it meant and what its function was. And so they tied, for example, the tree trunk, they would tie to a king um, because they saw it as strong and, you know, holding up this canopy and, and the canopy kind of represented sovereignty and they could see the birds of the air, you know, in, you know, hanging out in the canopy. We see that King Nebuchadnezzar, remember he's described as this great large tree, this whole empire. So that's, that's how they look at it. But, but we want to put everything in little literal boxes. And I think we have a tendency to do the same thing uh, with, with gender, because we're going to approach it from a, from material origins instead of, what is the message? What is the interpretation that the writer is trying to communicate to us? And I'm not sure the writer really is that concerned about, you know, uh, what, um, you know, biologically a male looks like in a female. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. So you, you do um, talk about, and this is uh, something that people have had different explanations for let us create man and woman in our image let us being plural who, who who's the us here uh, in your view well and that's another one we've been arguing over that for probably two thousand years <laughs> um to me it's just if if in fact you know we have god the father and his uh consort you know wisdom the mother uh, that's i mean i just see it in that simple you know, nothing complicated there. It's just a husband and wife, if you will, um, coming together and producing life, and that life is in their image. Yeah, which is which is so beautiful. I mean, that's like that's yeah. so core to who we who we are yeah. um, as, as as God's image. So um, that that would make perfect sense to me. Um, another thing that uh, you know you sort of made clear within this view uh, is Adam and Eve leaving their father and mother and cleaving to one another. So what's your understanding? Uh, well, I guess that th- this makes sense, but maybe talk a little about that. Um, well, isn't about that this- the million dollar question? I mean, that should be the first thing you ask, like who on earth are they leaving? Right. Right. I mean, if, you know, if we're approaching the scriptures again from material substantive origin and, and the, you know, nuts and bolts and molecules and atoms of what Adam and Eve are, we're like, who on earth are their parents if they're leaving their mother and father and joining with one another? But if that's not the point, if it's that Adam, you know, there, there's a whole world going on, you know, here's Adam, humanity, you know, he represents humanity and God is going to raise him up as the agent to rule and reign over the earth, you know, to be his representative agent on the earth. Well, then if he's in the image of God, then it makes more sense to me to say that, uh, that he would leave his father and mother, you know, technically speaking, God and wisdom um, to serve as their representative on earth. And his place of rulership would be, you know, Ghani Dan, the the garden in Eden, and then his rulership was supposed to extend out to the entire earth, even though the throne room, if you will, is in is the sacred center. So 
I'm not sure, you know, if, if in fact the writers aren't concerned about what we're made out of, um, and they're more concerned about kingship, rulership, and how the, how the, how this planet is going to be governed. And, and when the sons of God continue to come forth, like how are they going to rule and reign over them? Then that makes more sense to me. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, even if you're looking at it in another way, you, 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 at that point have to say they, they in fact do have an earthly mother and father that they're leaving, which we don't, yeah. we don't see an earthly mother and father. Not that, that that's not a possibility, um, but most people would say that they that they didn't, and therefore that's right. just a natural explanation to see um, we're not talking about um, an earthly mother and father. Um, oh yeah, and that reminds me, I, I can't remember where one of one of the books I wrote in, but think about Yeshua and uh, when the disciples. Uh, I can't remember where it is, but he basically he says, "Well, who is my mother? Right? Who are my who's my family? It's like." Huh? That's kind of random. Mm, yeah. So is he, uh, he clearly was born of, you know, Miriam <laughs> and, and the seed. And so he, you know, he's got a real mother and he's real, but yet he's saying, who are, you know, who's my mother? And so is that, you know, connected to what we're talking about here that in reality, so let me back up. This is probably important too. Um, in the ancient world, when a, Let's take David. He's probably the easiest to understand. But of course, we don't know who David's mother is, do we? But um, so there, he's got a father. He's eighth, you know, in in the litter, and they go, you know, they go down, and you know, they don't want any. Samuel didn't want any of them until they get to to David. So David was clearly born a mortal of father and mother. Had brothers, you know, worked out in the fields, a shepherd, whatever. So they tell us in the Mesopotamian world that when a king uh, was chosen and anointed and, and as the heir to the throne and was raised up, he was no longer considered to be mortal. He had now become immortal. Now, I mean, he's really mortal. But if you think of the, the pharaohs of Egypt, they were all considered gods and immortal. Mm -hmm. So this is just part of this sort of uh, enthronement ceremony that they would go into the throne room, if you will, and they would no longer be technically speaking mortal they had now become immortal or god if you will but they aren't really if you know what i'm saying so yeah. if you think about yeshua i mean i think that his whole life is a process of enthronement from the time he's born till the time he's resurrected because in the ancient world the process of enthronement was it wasn't like you just i mean we see it as you you see the king he gets a crown he sits on the throne end of story they had a whole, they had a series of ceremonies that were involved, like with um, Solomon, he, you know, he would go down to the Gihon Spring, right, with riding a donkey, and they would have a process there. And then when that part was finished, he would ascend up the mountain to take his seat on the throne. So in my mind, like mm -hmm. coming forth from the earth, you know, I think uh, Yeshua being born of the womb and then all the things that the main things that happen in his life, I see, it's my opinion, as the process of enthronement until finally he's, you know, resurrected. And where does he, he ascends the Mount of Olives, if you will, to take his seat on the throne. So I, he's, our, he's going through the same thing. Like he's born mortal, right, from uh, the womb of a woman, but he is going to be raised up divine. He's going to be raised up immortal as as the king. 
So I, I kind of see the same pattern as the mm. last atom as we had in the first atom, right? Mm. Yeah. Just yeah, a thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned, I think you mentioned this in, in, in the book, in your first book, actually, uh, I never really thought about, but the, the scriptures do make a point to point out the beauty of the matriarchs, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, um, which, you know, talk, talk, talk to that a little bit, you know, what, what's the purpose of calling out just how, how pretty these women were? Yeah. So if you consider that they are again, representations of God, the father and wisdom, the spirit wisdom as the mother, you know, from Adam, and then we go on down the line and then, you know, and obviously there's, uh, we don't have any emphasis on matriarchs, do we, between Adam and Noah. Um, but then when Abraham comes and we see there's an emphasis on Sarah's being beautiful and Rachel, Rachel being beautiful and, and Rebecca, Rivka being beautiful. So the sages associated um, this, uh, the, the Shekinah, the indwelling presence of God as feminine and they describe it as sort of indescribable beauty and this, this brilliance and radiance that comes forth of the indwelling presence. And so that's how they, they associated their matriarchs in the same way. And it's kind of, I mean, they really go out of their way to say, so like Sarah, whose name, you know, she, her name means princess and Zipporah, Moses's wife was the bird, the heavenly bird. Uh, Moses's mother, which is interesting, Yolkaved, which means the glory of God. You see all of this kind of um, language. Uh, my favorite, of course, is uh, David, King David's wife. Uh, we say Bathsheba, which doesn't really do it much justice because in Hebrew, it's Bat Sheva. And Bat in Hebrew is a, it can be daughter or it can be house. And Shiva is seven. So the daughter of seven, the house of seven. I mean, isn't that kind of interesting? Mm. You know, when we think about the Holy Spirit, um, the queen of Shiva, uh, she is Malkat Shiva or the queen of seven. And like, she's just this random figure <laughs> that shows up. And some people think, you know, she was in King Solomon's harem. I mean, we don't really know. And, and then um, Deborah. Uh, Deborah, her, her her name comes from the word Debir, which means to speak, but it's the name for the Holy of Holies. So you've got this portrait that just keeps replaying itself, you know, all through the scriptures of the matriarch and the patriarchs coming together and producing the line of the kings from Adam to the last Adam. So this beauty and brilliance and light and stuff was associated then with the indwelling presence of God. And it was connected to the, in particular, the matriarchs and that, that Shekinah or the Shekinah glory, how Christians would say it. Wow. Yeah. For, for me, that just, um, that really struck me because beauty is one of those things. It's, it's hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. And dwelling, you know, you think about that. I don't know if you, you're too young. You probably haven't. I used to watch the Miss America pageants, right? Back yeah. in the day when it wasn't woke. And virtually yeah. every time the the one who won was a Christian. Hmm. Like almost every time, you know, not every, but almost every time you're going, you know, there's an indwelling beauty and presence hmm. 
that just comes through someone who is a believer in covenant with God. They're supposed to look different, right? Mm. And, yeah. and that beauty is supposed to spread. So sorry for interrupting, but I couldn't help but think of that. No, yeah, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's one of those things. There's no reason for us to be able to look at, at someone in in, in admire their, their beauty. Um, but, you know, other than it's a reflection of, of who God is, you know, it, mm-hmm. for me, like if I hear even like a beautiful piece of art, you know, it, it's, it's just a reflection of, of, of God and in his ability to, you know, to create. Um, and, and we see that as, uh, as his imager. So I think that's, uh, that, that was really well, cool. Think about the Renaissance and the tremendous amount of Christian art, uh, music, literature, uh, all those things. Uh, there was just this burst of creative uh, creativeness, like Michelangelo, you know, Leonardo mm-hmm. da Vinci. All the the this, the things they produced during that period were like nothing we've ever seen, but all motivated by the spirit of God, if you will you know, in yeah. them, we, there was, there's, I don't think there's ever been a period in history that, that produced such amazing and creative, um, you know, art in all of its forms, sculpture. You think of also Michelangelo sculpting the David and um, just tremendous per, uh, amount of productivity in that period. Then you look at the stuff now, are we kidding? You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Picasso fan, but I mean, there's just some really, I've been to, you know, the, the Guggenheim in New York back in the day. And, it, you know, it's a modern art museum. You're like, really? I don't, there's no part of this I even get because it's just a reflection kind of of the chaos that, you know, when you throw out the Judeo-Christian um, root, then you kind of end up with a sort of chaos look and it reflects in everything. Mm. So I guess, and those two kind of things I want to talk about, you, you basically have already spoke with, uh, spoke about, um, you know, mentioned the, the woman being basically uh, like a voice for her husband and, and wisdom. Yeah. We see that in, in Proverbs. Um, yeah. Really- so the term there for her vo- the voice is the bot coal. So the daughter, it's called the daughter of the voice if we translate it. And so you see the manifestation of the bot coal on the mountain in Mount Sinai when in, in Exodus 19, when, you know, the mountain's shaking and it's a furnace and there's smoke and, you know, all of this. And then the voice of God, mm, it's, yeah. the bot pole, it's the it's the divine voice, but it's feminine. Mm. Or you think about um, when Yeshua was being immersed, Jesus was being immersed. Um, and so he goes under the water and, and then you see the dove again, the imagery of the dove, the spirit landing on him. And then out of the clouds of voice, the bot coal, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that language is also from ancient Mesopotamia. That's, that's a enthronement language. He is declaring, this is my son, the king, the heir to the throne. And so when he comes up out of the water, which is a reflection of the womb, which is tied to the woman once again, just mm. over and over and over again, because what's coming on him is divine wisdom so that he can rule and reign over his people, because that's what is required. A king without wisdom, you know, is, is chaos, which is what we're seeing now. And so every king in the ancient world wanted wisdom to be able to govern. 
And of course, our ultimate example is going to be Solomon, right? He has a dream and he asks for wisdom. And so you, you see Yeshua, again, I would liken the, the immersion as part of the process of enthronement, but that God is declaring, this is my son who will take the throne. He is the king. And we have all these feminine elements surrounding that, the water, the dove, and uh, uh, mm. the coal, the voice from heaven. Wow. Um, oh, that's so interesting. You know, anytime that's depicted, you always hear this like booming male, male yeah, voice. Right. It, it's, it's kind of all entrenched in, in masculinity. Um, yeah. Yeah. What we, what we've seen and heard and thought. Um, maybe talk about, maybe you've already addressed this, but uh, Jesus' birth paralleling with creation. Well, I just, uh, I liken it. I mean, you have the, the masculine feminine coming together to produce life. Of course, um, Joseph isn't, doesn't really figure into it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. But this idea of, so the, the, the act of creation is tied to the Holy Spirit. It's like this act, this quickening act of, of activity, of creation activity. And so we see the spirit, you know, moving um, in that, in the, in the same way, of course, and he comes, she was born through a woman, a virgin, um, a house. So, so let me go back for a second, mm. because the house was always feminine. And when we have terms in the, in the scriptures, like a uh, virgin daughter of Zion, right? That's something you, you probably heard. So we usually, I mean, we, we would tie that to Israel, right? That makes sense. But even more so, it was tied to Jerusalem and it was tied to the temple. So the temple was sometimes referred to as the virgin daughter of Zion because out of the temple, life would come forth. Now, what did Yeshua say about his body? You know, in, in John chapter two, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it, rebuild it. And he was speaking of his body. So out of the womb of Miriam is going to come forth new life that is going to continue, you know, propel that life forward over and over again. And the essence of the, the act of creation, the hovering over the waters is, is referring back, you know, that feminine attribute of the spirit hovering over the waters and functioning through Miriam, who is obviously feminine, um, and then producing uh, Yeshua, who is going to reproduce after like kind as well. Because it's interesting, he talks about how we, because uh, the basically, technically, the line of God, the sons of God, uh, in the literal uh, sense is finished once Yeshua is raised from the dead, right? But yet, it will continue on through his sons and daughters, and we are called the kingdom of priests, right? And holy ones who would take, you know, the message and spread it through the whole, you know, through the entire earth. So it doesn't end. It's it, you see the 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 idea of the eternal kingdom through seed. Hmm. All right. So I'd like to transition. I had some some questions that didn't seem to, to match up with with this with this concept that I was hoping I'm maybe sure you can bring some clarity um, on. But uh, you know, when we talk about um, Jesus being born, you know, we know that uh, Mary was impregnated by the Holy spirit. So right. that seems in, in my mind, how is that possible? If the Holy spirit's feminine. How is a feminine Holy spirit impregnating right. Mary? 
Well, so again, if we're going to look at it from biology, we're basically stuck. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't even make any sense. And so yeah. I, you know, we got to pull it back and say, okay, what is the writer trying to communicate here? And I do, I think the writer's trying to take us back to the creation because Yeshua is the sum total of the new creation, the new creation temple who is going to produce new life after his resurrection. So if we're going to, you know, if we're, if we're stuck on biology, you know, I'm just going to sit here and go, that doesn't make any sense to me. But if we're going to say the writer, uh, Matthew or Luke is, is trying the writer sees it in different way. And the writer is trying to get us to get back to Genesis chapter one, because Yeshua's ultimate purpose is to restore creation, to restore the entire cosmos as it was when God, you know, brought forth his Adam and his, you know, and his Chava to, uh, to rule and reign over the earth. So now he is going to rule and reign. Yeshua is over the earth with his bride, which is us. His, and that's going to form the house or the temple or the new creation temple because we don't have a temple. We don't have a standing temple. I mean, I don't know if the, you know, Israel the rabbis end up building one, but that's not even the point. Okay. So we're seeing the pattern of creation being repeated through his life. And that's the key. That I think is the message that the writer is trying to communicate to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, it's, you know, our minds, we, it's easy to get stuck on, on, on the, the, the science of, you know, we want to yeah. be focused on the genetics and the DNA. Um, yeah. It's not a science. I mean, Walton will say that. I mean, it's not a scientific textbook. Sure. And so um, if you approach it that way, it's a limited engagement. Yeah, that's true. Um, so another, something that was kind of confusing me uh, in in John, in the Gospel of John, it starts off with it. You know, the Word was with God, um, and so we, 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 you know, my understanding is that we're talking about Jesus Christ, which is God within the beginning, and we see that you know Christ had a role in creation. So, um, does this negate the, I, the the father mother idea? Well, no, because I mean, I don't think so in that. Now, remember, in the beginning isn't a, a point of, uh, on a timeline, right? Mm. It's house building. And mm. clearly, John, I mean, if we if we don't see this, we might as well just close the Bible and pack it up because clearly John 1 is trying to get us back to the creation story, right? He's trying yeah. to take us back there. And so... Uh, and we know that God called things. We have, you know, the whole, the, the speeches and, and the word of God coming forth. But it, it's significant that he puts in there and he tabernacled among us. So there's our Shekinah word, our Shekan, our Mishkan, which is feminine. That whole concept there is feminine. Once again, the indwelling presence of God as a feminine, as feminine. So we put kind of God, we have the, this tabernacling concept and we have this uh, producing the fruit that is Yeshua, the word of God. And of course, and then the, the chapter goes on and, and we see what he, you know, what he's come to do, if you will. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, we're to understand this as in, in the beginning, <clears throat> we had both, both the father, the son and 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 the mother right uh, you're saying. um 
so so it's not that the that the, that the sun came later even though we have this concept you know because from his word you know jesus was 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 always there right didn't have have a beginning you know we have a concept of you know him being the firstborn so it's right. It's hard to wrap your brain around it, but um. it absolutely is. I mean, and and again, because the language is so much, there's so much language around the ancient East world that is, it's real, but it's symbolic and trying to distinguish it because we approach everything from a scientific view in material. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So it, this is tough. And, and, uh, you know, I don't necessarily have, I mean, I don't know how that works. I wasn't there. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I don't know what that creation Genesis 1-1 looked like. But again, you know, the heavens and the earth, the unity of the heaven and earth between uh, the king and, you know, his queen or his subjects. And then the, uh, out of that, the toldot of the heavens and the earth would produce the sons of God. So I, it, it clearly looks like a replay to, to me. And, and it just exactly how Yeshua, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but that same... I think it's the pattern that's the key that helps me understand it versus, you know, if I start breaking it all apart and trying to go, well, this means this and that means that. And, and that doesn't work because you can't have, you know, a male this doing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, there yeah, are some yeah. things you just have to go, okay, I don't quite understand it, but um, I, and I do think, you know, knowing the Hebrew and the Aramaic is, is a big a plus and yeah. sometimes they just don't translate it all that well yeah um so i want to ask you about um and we see you know mostly you've made your case that um part of the role of, of eve and, and then hence females in general uh they're made an image of god is to bestow wisdom uh, therefore, naturally, women would make um, for good teachers, right? Yeah. Um, now, in, in scripture, we see mostly patriarchy. And, right. and so there seems to be a disconnect between this, you know, divine role of, of wisdom that we see naturally bestowed within women. And then in actuality, in practice, we're seeing mostly male, male teachers. Now there's, of course, there's examples in scripture um, of, of female teachers, but why don't we see um, more, I should say. And, and, and is that uh, essentially a, like, like a model to, to be repeated for us to say, okay, well, this is what was done. Um, therefore, this is how it, we should, we should do it. No, um, <laughs> just kidding. So you have culture, you know, and you can't bypass culture. And that's, you know, their cultures. I mean, they, they um, held women in high esteem, but in those, you know, all the way through in the scriptures and that culture and time, you know, that's not what was going to happen. And, and we do obviously have examples of it in the New Testament. So in my opinion, um, I, I think this is one of the biggest challenges and problems in the church um you know probably for the last few hundred years that you know women have been cut off at the knees and all because they go to one scripture that says you know be quiet and i'm going you know could we not just read this letter in the context in which it was written 
It wasn't meant to cover every woman for all time in human history that every woman's supposed to be quiet in, you know, in the congregation. So again, if Yeshua is that temple and from him, he produces the sons of God, which are us male and female, and we are the kingdom of priests and we have a job to do, then every congregation should be operating in us and in which uh I'm, so the other side of it is feminism, where women have taken over. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work yeah. either. Yeah. I mean, and so we have seen a devolving of male and female roles where, you know, women, I mean, men have been cut off at the knees, you know, in the last how many, 20 years or so, in which they're viewed as idiots who can't do anything and make a decision. And they've been, um, uh, mat, uh, what's the word, demasculine, what's the word I'm thinking of? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it's just, this is a huge problem. And then on the other side, we got women. Uh, I think I'll tell you the thing that bugs me the most if I'm watching a show. And uh, of course, the police chief of the, of this large city, uh, the chief of police is a woman. And then of course, when they, you know, the SWAT team's got to go take out some bad guy, she comes out in her stiletto heels with her, you know, uh, vest on and leads the way, guns blazing, right? I mean, yeah. give me a break. <laughs> that stuff just drives me crazy. So both roles have been um, have been corrupted in the church, mm. and 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 then you've got the other side where a woman can't even say anything and she can't teach. I mean, I can't even tell you being in churches telling me that I can't teach. Are you kidding me? I mean, I know from a almost, you know, many moons ago that the father has given me that gift mm. and you're just going to cut it off because you don't think women should be able to teach. So we've lost our balance. And when that happens, chaos ensues. So we see the chaos in the home and we see the chaos in the church. Now I'm not saying every church. Okay. Cause there's ones that operate yeah. exactly the way they're supposed to, but that voice in the church has been silenced in many yeah. churches. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. And I, I have to agree with you there. And I mean, you've kind of already alluded to that was actually a question I was going to get to later. Um, you know, because like I said, I've, I've been blessed by reading your books and, and you know, hearing your teachings on your website. Uh, and I, and I do believe the, do believe that you are gifted as a teacher. Um, but I wanted to ask you a personal question, sure. you know, on what it's, what it's like, um, being a teacher in a field that's, you know, dom, you know, male, so male dominated. Um, yeah, it, uh, there are many days I say, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> so, um, it's been a challenge. So for me, it, it's, um, I've been marginalized in a lot of different, uh, uh environments, uh, religious quote environments. So, so kind of in the Baptist tradition, you know, doors have shut. Um, I'm technically consider myself a Messianic Jew, but in Messianic Judaism, there aren't a lot of opportunities for women to teach. Uh, certainly not in the Orthodox Jewish world. And then there's a lot of Christian denominations that don't think so either. And you're just going, really, Lord? <laughs> just where am I supposed to go and do this? And so I kind of ended up in um, 
some people, I hate, I hate using these terms, but there is a move amongst the, the Gentiles, and maybe you're not familiar with, where a lot of them have kind of returned to the Torah, that they recognize that is the foundation of the Bible, and they're trying to cleave their lives to it. So they're not Jewish, they're Gentiles, they don't, you know, they don't really fit anywhere. They do celebrate the feasts, etc. So I'm I tend to be part of, of that community. They they want to hear what I have to say. Well, it ain't a very big community, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So I of course I we're fortunate with having the internet and being able to create uh, you know a website and be able to get the message out and bypass often the pulpit is the worst. You know, they just um I've been called all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, a heretic and a Kabbalist and, you know, all kinds of, of strange stuff um, only because they didn't understand where I was coming from. But it is very, very difficult to get into a church to be able to teach. Now you have to know your audience and some of this that we're sharing because you have the weird Christian broad, uh, podcast, we can talk about this stuff, but it'd be, I'd be hard pressed to go into a church and start talking about this. That I'm pretty sure I'd be thrown out. And yet these are things that I find the people that uh, that um, are attracted to the teaching that I do are mostly women because they've pretty well felt marginalized. So right now I've got uh, I'm teaching a course to about 50 women that, uh, online and I'm going through my books to help them understand. They're just there really haven't been a lot of opportunities for me. And I, you know, sometimes I just I mean, if you're seeking after, um, not necessarily fame, but if you know, if, if your mo becomes, I want to go teach everywhere and teach to millions and thousands and whatever. For me, I I have known it's never going to happen. So yeah. I just pray, Lord, you know, you open the door. I will go wherever you open the door, and you know. My books have had opportunities to go to people that I won't name them, but, you know, they're pretty famous and, you know, nothing ever happens. It's like they, you know, I'm like, okay, God, you know, I just keep trying. I keep trying to do what you want me to do. So I've decided, you know, I want to leave a legacy. And uh, so I'm writing a curriculum, a, a workbook, essentially, that goes with the three books and to hope to get it into more hands so that more people can get it to their children because the next generation gets it a whole lot more than the one I'm in. Um, they're pretty stuck in their ways. And so I do find that uh, millennials and even younger kids in their teens are very interested in this because everything they've heard doesn't make sense to them. And they want some, they want it to make sense. Like you can't answer every question like, well, cause it's in the Bible that doesn't work. And it's just like what we were talking about earlier. I mean, if you're going to say, talk about uh, Adam and Eve and, you know, a man will leave his husband, his, they will leave their mother and father and join together and produce life. Well, you know, that's a question they always have, like, who's their parents? That doesn't make sense to me, you know, or who did Cain marry or all these questions that nobody ever answers with other than it's in the Bible. Believe it. Take it to the bank. You're good. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I appreciate that. And, you know, hopefully that um, we'll, we'll speak to some people because, you know, what, what I hearing from you is that you're just stepping out in faith and you're being obedient. Um, and that's, that's what God has called us all to do. Um, and let, 
you know, let him take care of the rest. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm going to kind of continue on, on, on this thread a little bit more, but I actually had a couple of scriptures that, and I've, um, I've dug into this, this topic, um, quite a bit as far as, you know, women, women teaching. Uh, and so I've, I've looked at a, a lot of scriptures, but I, I came across since, since I was preparing for this interview, I came across a couple other scriptures that I never really heard, heard addressed before. So I, 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 I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. Um, now, of course, these are just kind of out of context, but um, okay. put, put them in, in context, but there may be some people listening that are, are perhaps maybe they can, you know, some of the same things, but um, anyway, uh, like I said, I'm going to continue on the, on this thread as far as uh, practical application, but I want to address a couple scriptures, if that's, if that's cool with you before we sure. go there. I'll tell you um, if I have no opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is uh, Isaiah 312. Okay. Um, and this seems to be like judgment language. Um, Children treat my people cruelly and women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you in the wrong way and turn you away from what is right. Um, and so I read that it seems to be like an indictment that, that women were ruling over them. Um, I have an idea, uh, but anyway, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. So to me, um, I'm trying to remember the context, but really uh, Isaiah is a unique book in that it, it contains an awful lot of creation language. So there's a lot in Isaiah that's trying to get us back to Genesis one. And um, so that's important when it's important filter when you're reading the book. And of course we have the oppression by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all that sort of thing. So I would just say, uh, you know, when you have a covenant relationship with God, there's certain promises and provisions provided uh, to each party, like if you were just in a, in a regular covenant and you would exchange names and all kinds of things go along with the covenant. So it's, it's speaking about when, when you have a, when a covenant is broken, when you break covenant, this is serious stuff. We just kind of go, Oh, you know, big deal. But the consequences for breaking a covenant, it creates chaos. And one of the main places it's going to create chaos is in the home. So because the home is the pattern of creation. And so when you start, I can relate to that because I think that's what's going on right now. I mean, in all honesty, forgive me of anyone who, you know, but this is how I see it. But women who are running the show, who are serving as mayors and governors, I usually just roll my eyes because they are the worst at it. They're authoritarian and oppressive in how they rule. I live in New Mexico and we have a woman governor and she is just terrible. And so when you tell, you know, it doesn't have to be, but when a covenant is broken, that's going to be one of the fruit of it is, you know, women are going to be authoritarian and rule over you and it's going to be cruel and ugly. And then men, their role also uh, falls apart and they become weak and insignificant and impotent to do what they need to do. So um, that's kind of, you know, just sort of a basic meaning of that. And, and, and yeah. it does play out with how, you know, the Babylonians coming and attacking and hauling them off and all that sort of thing. Yeah. That was kind of my, that was one of my thoughts um, as well. You know, the way you described um, Adam's role and Eve's role is that she was to come alongside him and, and, and give him wisdom. And what we're seeing here is that women were ruling over them. 
Uh, and then later on, I, I kind of continued reading uh, on in the chapter. He does talk, I think later in the chapter, he talks about um, he, he's kind of using that same judgment language against women in particular for, for idolatry. And so there's um, that I'm, I'm sure is part of it too. As you said, yeah. these, these, there's, there's a whole other, you know, issue at play here. Um, okay. And then here's another, this is a, a new Testament um, example. And this is one that um, I don't know, it caused a little confusion for me, honestly, but this is a Titus two, four through seven. Uh, then they, then they can teach the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be wise and pure, to be good workers at home, to be kind and to yield to their husbands then no one will be able to criticize the teaching God gave us in the same way and encourage young men to be wise in every way to be an example of doing good deeds. Then you can teach, do it with honesty and seriousness. And so this would confuse me here. We, we see, um, you know, um, sort of like a, like a command for men to teach. And then we see like a different role for women um, where teaching is, is not involved. Now, of course that, it doesn't say that women don't need to teach, but um, it does seem to kind of define roles for women, role for men, men being teaching. Um, so I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about that. Well, again, we have to go to the culture and time. Yeah. You know, that's key. You can't, you just, you can't throw that out. And because things that applied and how they function then are not, you know, not going to be the same, I, you know, um, I, I do think that's probably the context for that scripture. Um, you know, that's what probably first century period. So they're going to yeah. follow what the cultural norm is at the time. There's so much of that in the new Testament. We have to be very careful, but God's not, you know, it wasn't intended to, it's like we cherry pick the, mm. the ones that we want to make, you know, forever. <laughs> And then the ones, well, now that was just back then. <laughs> you can't sure, have it yeah. both ways. So I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of, of looking at the culture and the period and the time. And, you know, but that doesn't limit what God is trying to do. He works within cultural periods and cultural norms. He works within it. And, and, and yeah. his, his kingdom will expand despite it. Yeah. And I'm sort of thinking that too. And I've, um, cause the reality is, is that, that, that is what it, what it's saying, but then put that within its context that that was just the world that they, that they lived in. I mean, it's just, that was, that was it. And in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's still the world we live in. Sure. Um, yeah. it, it, it's sure. very different in a lot of ways, you know, it, but within, like you said, within church circles and, and dominations, um, you know, that's, they, they would look to that as an, as an example to, to follow basically, um, or, or, or even like a, you know, a, a direct command to us. Um, and it, 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 I don't know, it's one of the things, you, like you said, you, you'll read so much of this in context. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, this, we, we want to just make a direct application. Um, right. so yeah, we're really know. good at that. <laughs> we really, yeah, pick stuff out that we want it to work and, and that's why, honestly, when you're, whatever it is you're studying, I really encourage, you can't just, I mean, you don't even want to pull a, a verse out of a chapter. I mean, you don't even want to pull the chapter out. You want, you've got to read the whole book and see the whole, the book that you're approaching. 
uh, if you have any hope, because all the books have their a thread and a, you know a theme running through them, and and whatever's going on is going to tie to that. And then ultimately, which is why I end up spending so much time in Genesis one because everything's going to come back to there, everything. Yeah. And so you know, I've been really focused in on trying to find the big picture. And in fact, that's probably going to be my next book that I want to write specifically to Christians. And that is much more conversational in style and not so heady and and scholarly and just lay it out. Here's the big picture. And then the things that God has shown you over the years, you know, all those pieces of information and details will fit in the big picture. But if you don't see the big one, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're, it's easy to get lost and distracted and kind of off on a different tangent. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So going back to, you know, um, practical application, I got a couple more questions. Um, you know, you've already addressed marriage and how we have this picture of, of really marriage through, throughout all, all of scripture. Um, but, you know, how, how can we take this and, and apply it to uh, our own marriage today? Yeah, that it's, uh, it's a challenge because we all come from dysfunctional families and we bring our dysfunction into our marriage. Um, and I mean, marriage in some way is like fine wine, you know, it, it ages well if you stick with it. But, you know, um, there's just no way around it when you're dealing. I think when men and women can find their purpose and function um, within themselves and within their relationship, it really takes a lot of the pressure and the burden off because most Mm. of the time we want the other person to do it this way because that's how we see it. And then, you know, we get into kind of get into chaos in the marriage. So, and it, it's a process, you know, you don't arrive in a marriage with, yes, I know who I am. And, you know, (laughs) it's the journey is more important than the destination, I think. And we are fixated as uh, people on getting to the destination. Where is it? How, whatever it takes to get there and not sometimes allowing God to mold us and shape us in the journey. And, uh, and just understand that the, the journey is, is, filled with hardship and difficulties and obstacles to overcome as we're learning, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all ways down the road, you know, I'm at the, (laughs) the other end and I can look back and see, you know, multiple mistakes and failures and, you know, attitudes on steroid. I guess the sooner we can learn who we are in him and um, really, if that becomes transformational in our lives, and we are, we gain contentment in that. And we aren't so busy trying to change everything else around us, everyone else around us. Not that you don't engage in the culture and get involved, you know, to make things better, but the sooner you reach that place of contentment, um, the more fruitful will be your marriage. Mm. Yeah. And I, I tell you, you know, speaking for myself, that this concept of the women's role being in wisdom coming alongside the husband really hit home for me. Cause I, I've heard this from older mentors as well that, and I'm, I'm still relatively young in my marriage, but I've in the 
12 years of marriage that I've had learned to listen to my wife. Um, and I've just learned over time that she has, she has that, that, that wisdom. Um, mm-hmm. and she, she has insight into me that, that, that I, I can't see my, myself. She has that ability to, to call out and say, you know, she, she, she basically, I've learned, she's not always right, but she's like always right. Um, and so, yeah. uh, <laughs> I've learned that over, I've learned that over time, um, to listen to her. I've, I've messed up enough times to look back and say, yeah, you're right. I should have listened to you. you know? And, and so, um, and so, yeah, um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the Lord tells Abraham to listen to the voice of his wife. Same with Isaac and Jacob. It tells them to listen to their voice. That's that Bach Cole, that wisdom speaking. Mm. Uh, you know, that's not in there by accident. And so, yeah, we need to, you know, men need to learn to listen and, and women need to um, know how to share that voice. There's a time and a place and, and an tact and a diplomacy that has to be used. It has to be tempered. You don't just spew it out. So, you know, that, um, that shaping and molding, it, it takes really a, a lifetime in a marriage to finally, you know, if you ever do get a place where it's, yeah. I mean, my husband and I, we've been married 37 years, right? And there's a lot of water under that bridge. But and and then you find that you're in different seasons. You know, you you have a season when the kids are young, and you know you're raising them, and they're yeah. You know, I homeschooled mine, so we had we had a dynamic that we had to work out there. And then of course, you know, they graduate and they go on, and then they get married and have kids, and your house is empty. And now, you know, I know women who, when when the husband has retired and comes home, they're like, really, <laughs> you're going to be here all the time in my domain how's it gonna work right yeah (laughs) you know you have you kind of gotta figure out the seasons and stuff and so you know my husband and i are are in that uh, he has a business i have a business we kind of work in our corners in the day meet for lunch go back to our corners you know meet for dinner so i find actually we are honestly more productive now than we've been Mm. in in a lot of years Um, And we're very excited. We have kept ourselves, try to keep our minds sharp and and we stay active in our community and the community that we're in, we're the oldest, we're, uh, we're we're the two oldest people. Everyone else is in their thirties with kids. Mm -hmm. So that keeps us relatively young, Uh, but we we're excited. I mean, I know this is, we're in a difficult season. I don't, you know, things are going to get very challenging ahead. And so we come together as sort of the wisdom to the younger crowd saying, look, you know, this community is important. This is what we got to do to keep it together, to build it. You know, how do we can take care of the widows and orphans if things get really, because they don't think like that, but we've seen it all. So we're, we're sort of the white hairs, you know, that try to uh, impart wisdom to them. So again, it's learning your role in, in your season making sure that you act on it and be confident in it. And, um, you know, that's a journey the Lord takes you on. Yeah. So this next question is maybe multi-layered, but it has to do with, with headship. Um, and yeah, I think from there, you know, I've, I've seen in, uh, just my own circles, uh, people that from there have, 
gotten out this concept of a final say in, in decision making with, with husbands. Um, but I want to kind of start start with headship because I think that's where that where that comes from. So what what you know, what is your concept of, of headship? You know, what what is that? And then um, I guess what is it not? So um, I don't want the job <laughs> of being head of the home. You know what I'm saying? Because with it, it's a tremendous amount of responsibility to be responsible before God for how your, you know, your home is functioning. Like, um, it's a bit of a relief not to have to have that. Um, that that's a huge responsibility because you, you're the one, you know, as the man standing before God, you know, you're interceding on behalf of your home and the, the failures and the, the problems that come fall on your shoulders. That's what leaders take on that role of that hitch. And, and we don't really see good examples of that anymore. And yeah. often what we see in the relationship is the blame game. Well, if you hadn't done that, then this wouldn't happen. And it's all your fault. Well, no, I didn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so husbands, cause they've really been beaten down in the culture are reluctant to uh, recognize that responsibility before God, because it's a sobering responsibility. Um, at the same time, uh, for us, so for example, in our home, I'm just way better with finances. It is what it is. You know, we yeah. had a lot of years where he didn't listen, <laughs> but I, I have, you know, I happen to be Jewish and sharp at that stuff. So, uh, we, we finally come to the place where whatever it is we're going to do, you know, we will talk together and figure it out. And he's got ideas and I got ideas. And sometimes we don't agree, but ultimately we try to figure out a place where, where we can make a decision. So again, wisdom, the ultimate thing about wisdom is it doesn't matter every minute of every day you need was, you need to exercise wisdom because your life is the sum total of all the choices that you make. So it's in some ways it's more difficult. In some ways it's easier, you know, making a choice with another person. Like sometimes you just want to make the choice and you just, you know, <laughs> let me just make it. But other times when you're making it together like that under the sovereignty of God, it will go well because you're making it for the benefit of your home. But ultimately the man has to stand before God for the results of that decision. He's responsible for it. Hmm. And uh, yeah, that's just, I think we've made way more into it than it actually is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That the kind of that concept of final save, you know, I've, you know, we, we can take that in. Not like this is what we're going to do. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we can kind of crunch it down to where, you know, we, what, what decisions can be made and what decisions can be made, you know, I think if you you have defined roles, then then like for example with the finances, then I imagine you have you have freedom to to take on that role, right? right. Um, right. That that's a uh, some, something you you guys have decided um, together that you you would have that role. Um, Took a while. Yeah, but um, anyway, yeah, cool. So um, I guess maybe I have one more question. Okay. And, and then, and then I'll kind of let you, uh, you know, close this up. If you have any kind of final thoughts, but uh, 
I've, I've looked in this just a little teeny bit and I've heard just a little teeny bit about it. Um, there are times within scripture that it, it seems to, to uh, maybe imply that there is a hierarchy amongst the, the Godhead. Um, but other times it seems that they're just denoting different roles within the Godhead. Um, what, what are your, your thoughts on as far as hierarchy within the Godhead? Well, again, if we look at hierarchy, the way we look at hierarchy, you know, we got the big cheese and if everybody doesn't follow suit, you know, whammo, you know, wrath is coming. Um, I, I guess I don't see it the same way. And, and, and to your point, I think everything, it's more about your role. What is your function and purpose and role in all of this? Because if you're doing what you've been called to do, there chaos will be pushed away. If you're trying to do someone else's role, you know, for example, in the temple. So people get frustrated because there's certain places in the, in the terms of men and women, you know, women couldn't just go wherever they wanted. Actually, nobody could. Uh, so we're going to get all bent out of shape. Like, would you want the responsibility of the entire community of Israel on your head if you messed up as the high priest? Like he had the highest authority in that environment. And because of it, he was the one to go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. And if he didn't prepare, and and, and interesting, I I must add this, that the high priest could not serve and he couldn't serve at Yom Kippur if he was not married. That was one of the requirements. The priests were required to be married. Isn't that interesting? And so of all of the positions um, of in the, in the temple structure, the high priest was the one who could go farthest into the Holy of Holies to the throne room of God. But with that came tremendous responsibility and he could easily die if he didn't do everything according to the protocol that God had designed. Did I want that responsibility? No, thank you. Now in that responsibility, he was trained and prepared to be able to do that. And so I see the the hierarchy thing in the same way. Not everyone's called to be the high priest. Not everyone's called to be a Levite. Not everyone's called to be a priest, whatever. If we would just settle into the role and place that he has called us and do it to the best of our ability with wisdom, uh, everything is going to function in order. And so the temple would function as it's supposed to function if everybody went where they're supposed to go and not be jealous so that I would say is the, the single most, um, the attribute that causes the most uh, disruption and chaos in any kind of environment is, is jealousy. So in my own life, you know, I mean, I've had to fight that because I, I sometimes won't be invited places because I'm a female or whatever. I teach things nobody wants to hear, <laughs> you know. One has to fight the envy and the jealousy and rest in what God has called you to do because <clears throat> jealousy and envy will cause more chaos in, in a marriage or in a, in a community than just about anything else. And you really see that in politics. Ugly is all get out when people are stepping on one another to try to get to the top. And, you know, it's just it is the most ugly, uh, horrific attribute that destroys everything that comes in its path. So we really must fight against that. So I hope that kind of answers your question. 
Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I uh, just want to say thank you for, for coming on and talking about a, a, an issue that, um, or, or a topic that, you know, a lot of people don't want to touch or don't even want to hear. And some people uh, will kind of shy away from it. But um, I knew when I heard you kind of speaking on it, I, I wanted to have you on because um, I, I think it, it's a worthwhile discussion and I appreciate it. Um, any closing thoughts before we uh, wrap up? I can hardly think of anything left. I think <laughs> covered a lot yeah Um, uh, you know just encourage people i mean if they if this material and information is you know of interest to you to go to my website uh it's just foundationsintora.com and you can become a member you can be free or whatever you want to do my books again are on amazon the temple revealed series so i really approached the series from the relationship between husband and wife male and female um, priest and king all that sort of stuff uh, to, to help people understand the temple environment. And, you know, it is in itself kind of a, it's a, it's considered to be a female environment, which is kind of interesting as well. And uh, I also have a ministry called on fire prayer. So if you want to join us in prayer, um, you can just go to onfireprayer.com and we pray pretty well weekly specifically for the na- our nation, but um, around the world. And I just want to encourage, you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground and I want to beat a dead horse, but, you know, God has called you. He's given you talents and gifts. You need to find them and uh, you need to appreciate the journey that he's put you on and, and uh, great things. You'll produce fruit when you recognize that. And that's what really we're here. We're here to produce fruit and expand the kingdom. Amen. Uh, awesome. And I'll put links uh, both to your previous interview and to your site in the show notes for those that are listening. Um, cool. You want to close this out in prayer? Sure. Lord, I just thank you for this tremendous opportunity. And I just pray a special blessing on Sam and he's willing to stretch himself and step out. And sometimes with that, a lot of criticism comes, but Lord, you're capable of opening the door and letting people see. And I just pray that you would open this message to a larger Christian audience, Lord, to help them make sense of things that have been confusing and that don't make sense. And ultimately, we're here, Lord, we're extensions of your, uh, of what you're trying to do on this earth. Let us recognize our role as image bearers and kingdom priests on this earth to extend your kingdom to the four corners and to lift up those who have been brought low and, and those that in this environment now are suffering. Uh, things are very difficult for a lot of people. People have experienced death in their family and and depression, all kinds of things. I pray that your image bear kingdom people will help rescue those who don't know who you are and to help bring relief from the pain and suffering that so many are are experiencing. So we thank you, Lord. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at theweirdchristianpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.